This episode of Propaganda is sponsored by Lewis and Clark College's 35th Annual Gender Studies Symposium, which is scheduled for March 9th, 10th, and 11th in Portland, Oregon. Game on! Gender and sexuality in play will explore subjects ranging from queer comedy to gaming culture. Don't miss out on this exciting series of free lectures, workshops, panel discussions, and an art exhibit. Learn more at www.lclark.edu or click on the Gender Studies Symposium ad on the Bitch Media website. All right, see you at the symposium. My world is fire and blood. In the epic 2015 film Mad Max Fury Road, which is now up for 10 Oscars, modern society has dissolved. Life revolves around those who control the scarce resources of oil and water. Several men wield power through violent cults. Once again, we send off my war rig to bring back gasoline from Castown and bullets from the bullet farm. As the villainous Immortan Joe demonstrates so clearly, these are cults built on pure patriarchy. These men at the top keep a stranglehold on the Earth's natural resources and use them to control people's lives and physical bodies. As part of that, they create a social system of religious veneration and devotion directed toward themselves and, of course, toward their tricked-out vehicles. I am your Redeemer! It is by my hand you will rise from the ashes of this world! Everyone who's not at the very top of the power pyramid in Mad Max Fury Road sacrifices their identity, their desires, and their lives to the will of a Morton Joe. While Mad Max is a sci-fi film looking at a dystopian future, it reflects some of the realities of real-life cults. American history, and our present, is full of charismatic, patriarchal cult leaders. On this episode of Propaganda, we're exploring the gender dynamics of real-life American cults and the prolific pop culture that cults have inspired. Violent cults are real, but also real is the outsized fear of cults in society that has led to unjust backlash against people who society thinks of as odd, like in the 1994 convictions of the teenagers, the West Memphis Three, as documented in the film Paradise Lost. On this show, we'll talk with an expert on the history of cults, hear the voices of survivors of Jim Jones's Jonestown cult, discuss how cults play into current shows like Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, and reveal the bizarre cult history behind one very mundane beverage. Stay tuned. When Peggy Riley was growing up in California in the 1970s, the news was full of stories about violent faiths and death cults. When she was five years old, Charles Manson was sentenced to life in prison for the murders committed by his family. She was in junior high during the Jonestown Massacre. The photos of Jim Jones's followers lying flat on the floor, all having drunk poison punch at his command, made a big impression on her. As an adult, she went on to write a novel about a woman and her two daughters who decide to flee a polygamous cult where the children have so far lived their whole lives. That book, Amity and Sorrow, also features a male cult leader who resembles Jim Jones or David Koresh, who led the Branch Davidian cult in Waco, Texas. Riley sees the book as about God, sex, and farming. 
She's also written about the history of cults in America for Publishers Weekly and is here to give us some background on the patterns we see around gender and cults. We called her up at her home in the UK. Hi, Peggy. Hi. So you wrote in Publishers Weekly about how the history of American faith is filled with charismatic cult leaders, specifically men who are charismatic cult leaders. Can you tell us a little bit more about the history that you researched in working on your novel and why there's so many men who are cult leaders? Yeah, it's always men. Isn't it funny? Um, I was interested um, in these charismatic leaders and I, I started thinking about why is it always men? Where are the women? That's usually my question when I'm starting a book. And uh, the answer of where are the women is uh, there aren't very many and certainly not in violent faiths. And I think even stepping further back than that, I was thinking about how do you come to a place in your faith where you think that you can speak for God. And I wonder if it's something about being in a faith where you know you don't look like your God. You can't speak for your God because the things your God says about your sex as a woman um, would be hard to um, stand up for. So I was interested in um, these two daughters, Amity and Sorrow, and their responses to the faith of their father and what would happen if one tried to be faithful, tried to be good in the faith and realize its, uh, its limitations. So um, I wanted to see what it would feel like for, um, for a girl to think, you know, I can, I can follow what my father is telling me to do, which is going to lead me in the direction of the Virgin Mary. Or I can think, hang on a minute, you know, the guy who's playing God and the guy who's playing Jesus gets all the glory. Um, but as I say, there weren't very many, um, there weren't very many examples. So when you say there weren't very many examples, you mean there weren't very many examples of female cult leaders, but there's obviously women who are who are wrapped up in cults or um, who the men have. As the followers. And yeah. these um, cults, these utopian societies are often polygamous. They're not always, but they're often polygamous. So uh, the gender is skewed uh, anyway, um, particularly in the fundamentalist Mormon faith, as an example. Um, they, uh, they need... The ratio of women to men um, to be very off so that the men in power can have as many wives as possible and they um, they limit access of the young boys growing up to um, stay in the community um, I was kind of glancing back at the some of the research that I'd done about um, women in faith and you know there are women who are powerful in in um, their own faiths, you know, the Shakers, obviously, um, Mother Anne, um, Amy Semple McPherson, but they're not, they're not cults and they're not violent. So in these utopian faiths that are based on Christianity, males and females are not viewed equally by the power structure or by the men in charge. So the women aren't um, empowered to be equals. Yeah, you write also in this publisher we- this Publishers Weekly article that you did about the history of cults. I really like this sentence that you have, so I'm just going to read it aloud. Um, you said, It is a uniquely American impulse, this desire to build utopia, the self-belief that it can be done, and the ability to forget how the first Eden ended. It is our humanness, our jealousy and lust, our envy and greed, that make our utopias fall every time. 
I think this is so interesting, thinking about cults as, as sort of a manifestation of, of American ideals to the extreme extent. There is something about um, this building of utopias that's um, uniquely American. Historically, I, it is the history of America, this, our um, radical faiths and our splinter groups and our confidence in that we can build something and make it last. Um, it's, it's only the shakers who, you know, consistently remembered how Eden, uh, fell and that, and that, um, Adam's flaw was sex. Um, but that the worst way to build a cult is to, to decide to be celibate because you're, you're obviously not going to grow followers. Um, that was the real strength behind the early Mormon church is, uh, they found a really clever way to create followers and to build their families. Uh, quickly. And if your faith is also composed of families, it's that much harder to pull them apart because your faith is also your blood. How do you stop believing in your own family? Lots of the cults that we think about in American history are are violent cults from the 1970s and from the 60s. And then it's also really worth pointing out that in the 1980s and early 90s, there was a big fear of of cult-motivated violence. I think about um, actions that teenagers took um, that were that parents and mainstream media saw as potentially being, you know, driven by a cult when really they're just, you know, lashing out against society or wanting to listen to heavy metal. I remember as a teenager, this uh, the McMartin case and all these, um, they they would they would find that kind of any suggestion of abuse would all of a sudden turn into this kind of satanic cult happening in nursery schools and basements and um, any this kind of this sense that anything you couldn't remember as a child um, must mean that you were abused and then it would always have satanic overtones uh, we're ter- we're we're still really afraid of the idea of the devil I suppose and it really kind of um, took over um, the popular imagination in the in the 80s. Uh, I suppose I was less interested in that, but I, I really do remember that that kind of um, period of, of fear. And there's there's something wrapped up maybe in our Protestant roots where we're in that kind of pilgrim sense, always looking for the devil. was author Peggy Riley. Her novel about women escaping a cult is called Amity and Sorrow. Jim Jones is the best-known cult leader in American history. In the 1950s, Jones organized a religious group called the People's Temple. The group moved several times as reporters kept investigating abuses and coercion within the group. First, they moved from Indiana to Northern California, then to San Francisco. Then they bought a plot of land in the nation of Guyana, where Jim Jones established a city that he called, of course, Jonestown. He saw the outpost as both a socialist paradise and a, quote, sanctuary from media scrutiny. The cult ended in tragedy in 1978, when Jones had 909 members of the church drink poisoned Kool-Aid. They also killed a U.S. congressperson who had come to investigate the cult 
and killed some of his aides and a temple defector who was trying to leave. It was the largest mass murder of American civilians before September 11th. Cult members who survived the so-called revolutionary suicide give insight into the power dynamics of cults. A decade ago, the audiozine Invisible Inc., this was in the pre-podcast era when people were still using the term audiozine, documented the stories of two survivors. Here's that show with an introduction from host Roman Mars. Our first story is called Surviving Church. It was produced by Bruce Gerstmann. Brian and Christine Kravitz met about 30 years ago. They were part of the same church and had one big thing in common. On November 18, 1978, all of their friends were killed, and those that weren't committed suicide. Brian and Christine were members of the People's Temple, the organization set up by one of the most famous reverends, Jim Jones. When I first came, I gave my watch, I gave a wedding ring that had a diamond in it. If I had any money in my pocket, I'd give it. My name is Christine Kravitz. I was living with some friends. We were all into uh, Eastern philosophy at the time. That was 1973. There was a lot of pressure, and uh, my friends really pressured me. But I went because I didn't want to... not be with my friends, and I was afraid that maybe they were going to find out something that, you know, was going to be really important and I'd be left behind. It's hard for me to connect that People's Temple was a cult, but in in the truest definition of cult, it was. I never heard the term. I'm Brian Kravitz. I was living in Philadelphia. I went to this revival meeting. The man was very political, very charismatic, and he had all these wonderful people with him that were just very happy to be there, and something very different than my life had been going. So I went the next night. uh, Somewhere in the meeting said, oh, if you want to go back with us, come by tomorrow night. And so I went. We got on the bus, the Greyhound bus, and All these beautiful old ladies were coming around me and giving me fried chicken and potato salad and all of a sudden I was being treated like family. And so I felt very, very comfortable there. Went on to stay with the bus and we came out to California next. Maybe we stopped somewhere else, I don't really remember. And then we were at, uh, it was like a Sunday night, and that evening we all got back on the buses again, went up to Redwood Valley, 125 miles north of San Francisco. And at that point, I, I, I think that's when I decided that I would come and stay. But meanwhile, I had an apartment in Philadelphia. I had a car in Philadelphia. And I had people to say goodbye to. I had my family back there, who I wasn't that close to, but I wanted to say something. And so I went up to, to Jim Jones and I told him my situation and he and automatically said, well, this man wants to join People's Temple, but he needs to go back to Philadelphia and take care of some business. He needs some money. So people started coming up and just handing me money. The first requirement, no one actually said it, but you knew by looking at everybody else women had short hair in the church, uh, mainly to be more unattractive, to be more unified. You know, we wore long skirts and, you know, shirts until we got uniforms. Then eventually we we started wearing these uniforms that were like black uniforms with red turbans. There were a lot of black people there. 
I'd say the, uh, over 50% black people, and then there were a lot of white people. A lot of the white people were Jews. So I remember one of my first days of being there, I went over to this guy's house, and he was having, uh, what, matzo ball soup or something that like it automatically took back me back to my childhood of being Jewish. So like it was like uh, integrating everything that I'd ever been before and making sense of my present. The stuff that Jim Jones preached about, about social change and working with senior citizens and doing good in the world and all that is what attracted me because I wanted to be very selfless. You know, everybody was driving around in old cars. And that did a lot to keep things in balance. All I can say was very charismatic. Lots of singing. It was like a very churchy type atmosphere. Religion never meant that much to me. I was more there for political reasons. All these things that he said that were about socialism would make sense. Even in church services, you were supposed to sit next to somebody black, so you look like you're not sticking to your own kind. I was in the temple for six years. When I left San Mateo, I moved to uh, Redwood Valley. It was different plots of land. It wasn't anything, it wasn't one large piece of land everybody lived there. It wasn't some idyllic scene. It was single-family dwellings. Some of them were fixed up. Some of them were just left like they are. I lived communally with um, a lot of people, and we had houses that um, had, you know, three to four bedrooms in them, and there were always at least three sets of triple bunk beds in the bedrooms. You didn't always sleep a lot, because if you got more than four hours of sleep a night, you were considered not very dedicated. When you were in the temple, you really weren't supposed to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend unless it was approved of by the church, which mostly meant that it would have to be an interracial couple, because if you were coupled off with somebody, uh, especially if you were white and you chose somebody white, then people would consider you not being so dedicated that you have to stick with white people. But I did have a relationship with another person who was white. We were told to uh, end it because it was not approved of, but um, we didn't. We even wrote Jim Jones a letter saying that we wanted to get married and adopt a black child, which would have been the way that it would have been approved. And, and we really did want to do that. And then he was sent over to Jonestown. They just took him one weekend. I didn't know he was going. He didn't know he was going to the last minute. We didn't get to say goodbye. I was in Red River Valley. He was in San Francisco at the time. So um, that was that. I had a picture painted in my mind from people's letters that wrote me and uh, how beautiful things were in Jonestown and I was really looking forward to going down there. People would be taken from San Francisco to you know, either Texas or Miami by bus and then put onto an airplane and land down in, I guess, in Georgetown and then take a boat ride to Guyana, to a George Jonestown. I also was going to school to learn biomedical equipment, so I wasn't, you know, I think they wanted me to be as trained as possible, so when I got down there, I would be as useful as possible. When I'd start reading articles about uh, people writing things about Jim Jones, um, you know, I started to read them and think to myself, you know, I gotta get out of here, but I didn't want to leave my friends, and there was an element of fear also about leaving, about what would happen to you, not that he would kill you or go after you, and some of the things that he said, you, you really thought were going to happen in the world. 
There would be blood baths in the streets. They'd be hanging black people. They'd like, like a big holocaust would would happen. There were times in the in the San Francisco Temple that Jim Jones would talk about, you know, if they come to get one of us, they're going to have to get all of us, and people would rant and rave and raise their fist in the air and stuff. That day I went to work and I got a phone call around 11 o'clock that night saying all hells broke out in Jonestown and Leo, the congressman's been killed. I was in San Francisco uh, at the People's Temple headquarters on Geary Boulevard, Geary and Fillmore. I had taken a nap and a friend woke me up and she told me and from that minute my life changed radically. We didn't know where this all came about. We didn't know if the government was responsible for this and then we thought all, all these people committed revolutionary suicide. I, I would have taken the poison had I been there myself. But as horrible as some of the things were, it was, it was, my life was much better than it was before I came to church. I was learning a lot of things. There were people that were my close friends. You really felt like you had family. You really felt you were part of something bigger than yourself that you had control over. We were happy and, and free and, and something that people on the outside, outside the People's Temple, didn't have. And it's only been until Brian came back in my life that I really, we both kind of feel like we've saved each other's lives. We were both kind of uh, uh, had holes in our hearts for such a long time that um, I really sometimes didn't care whether I lived or died. We especially knew each other in the first couple of years of People's Temple, and I went off to San Francisco. And then in 1978, when it all ended, I saw her once or twice. We had a little bit of connection. Then, let's say it's 79, I hadn't seen her. I didn't see her at all. I didn't see her. We, we, we spoke on the phone once or twice. We both always had each other's phone numbers written down. But, you know, she got caught up in what she was doing. I got caught up in what I was doing. And it wasn't until 20 years later we started seeing each other. I chose to change my life, give up everything I was doing, and be here with Christine. Because I, I, I knew this is where I belonged. Brian and Christine are married now. They live outside of San Francisco, California. Bruce Gersman is a journalist living in El Cerrito, California, and a frequent contributor to Invisible Link. You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Merry Christmas, sisters. Apocalypse, apocalypse, we caused it with our dumbness. Uh Let's go, let's go! The Netflix show Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt starts off with a group of women escaping from a cult. A male leader has kept them trapped in a bomb shelter underground for years, telling them that the world has ended. It's a very dark premise for what becomes a fish-out-of-water comedy as one of the women moves to New York and tries to adapt to modern life above ground. Cults have long been fodder for pop culture, as bitch creative and editorial director Andy Zeisler details in this next essay. Why are audiences so interested in stories about these separatist groups? Andy explores how millions and millions of us who have no personal experience with cults are still drawn to these stories in movies, books, and TV shows. 
A heads up, this essay includes discussion of sexual abuse. There are no graphic details, but the discussion might be triggering to some people. I don't know when I first became fascinated by cults, but I do remember exactly when I realized that what I'd thought of as a secretive and slightly shameful fascination, one that I didn't voice to friends until I was in my 30s, was in fact something shared by a lot of women I knew. It happened when I began reading John Krakauer's Under the Banner of Heaven, the 2003 book that traces the schism between Mormonism and the fundamentalist splinter groups now known as fundamentalist Latter-day Saints. I found myself in conversation after conversation with equally immersed female readers, at the library, on public transportation, even at parties. As time went on, my coworkers knew that I could be counted on to cover any book or film about cults. And by the time Facebook came around, my co-obsessives and I spent way too much time trading links to stories about things like Lululemon's ties to the Landmark Forum. When an acquaintance actually tried to recruit me into a cult, I was weirdly excited about it, though not excited enough to actually fall for her sales pitch. These days, I'm not at all surprised when I meet pop culture-minded feminists who share this interest in cults. It feels less like a shameful, fringy quirk than it once did. In fact, judging by the amount of contemporary pop culture that turns on the axis of women, gender, and cults, our fascination has become thoroughly mainstream. This month brought us the lifetime made-for-TV movie Manson's Lost Girls, a soapy walk through well-trod Manson family territory. Moonwalk's a fake. It is? It's a government PR stunt. Make the country forget about poverty in Vietnam when what they ought to be doing is preparing for helter-skelter. The past couple of years have featured cult subplots on critically revered TV series like Mad Men and Orange is the New Black. The police procedural Aquarius, whose second season begins later this year, centers Charles Manson as the big game hunted by David Duchovny's corrupt cop. In the Tina Fey-produced comedy Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, an occasionally uncomfortable amount of laughter results from the title character's escape from a doomsday cult housed in an underground bunker. Meanwhile, director Todd Haynes is reportedly working on a TV series about the Source family, a California health food cult whose too-weird-to-be-fiction story was the focus of a 2012 documentary. Emma Klein's upcoming novel, called The Girls, which is based on, you guessed it, Manson's Women, is one of publishing's most hyped 2016 releases. And in film, there's been a steady stream of both feature films and documentaries that look into cult life with credulity, cynicism, humor, and horror, sometimes all at once. But though cults come in all sizes and forms, there's undoubtedly one narrative whose cultural currency trumps all others. And that's the story of the guileless and innocent young woman or women taken in and warped by a charismatic male leader. It's the story of Manson and the female acolytes who, even as they age into their 70s, are still referred to as girls. It's the story of the thousands of FLDS women who under prophets Rulon and then Warren Jeffs were married off as prepubescents to men decades older while age-appropriate boys were cast out of compounds so as not to pose a threat. It's the story of Shelley Miscavige, who grew up refilling L. Ron Hubbard's drinks on board the floating Scientology Center called the Apollo, married current Church of Scientology leader David Miscavige, 
and hasn't been seen for more than 10 years. There is an unavoidably gendered dimension to the way that we understand, discuss, and represent stories about cults and cult behavior. That's because so many of them take the form of outsized patriarchies whose entitlement to women's minds, bodies, and freedoms are extreme versions of social systems that we recognize and in most cases repudiate. And though contemporary cult narratives don't often approach the visual luridness and gore of 1970s shock pics like Suspiria, The Wicker Man, and The Devils, the narrative of women as particularly vulnerable to and victimized by cults has become as unremarkable as it is disturbing. In the third season episode of Orange is the New Black, that traced the backstory of silent, mystical kitchen worker Norma, Anyone with even a passing familiarity with cult tropes knew that as soon as the young and flower-crowned Norma kissed her new guru-slash-husband, the camera would pull back to reveal a line of beaming young women marrying the same groom. Silver tree. On this blessed day, I take you... This is getting weird. I never should have signed over the pink slip to my Volvo. I joined my heart to your heart, my soul to your soul, and my flesh to your flesh. In the scene from the Source Family documentary in which the group's leader, Father Yod, marries one disciple, you know it won't be long before she's joined by a baker's dozen more. In the cascading series of scandals that unfolded within Reverend Sun Myung Moon's Unification Church was the revelation that the family-focused Moon preyed on young women under the guise of purification. The media coverage of Waco's doomed Branch Davidians whose 1993 standoff with the FBI ended in bullets and flames, focused heavily on the sexual appetite of leader David Koresh, including his wish to have 60 wives and an additional harem of 80 women. And the revolting kicker of Prophet's Prey, the recent documentary about now-imprisoned FLDS prophet Warren Jeffs, is an audio recording of Jeffs consummating his marriage, and I say both these words with the heaviest of air quotes, to a 12-year-old on a ceremonial temple bed. If you're keeping sweet no matter what, you're a person ready to give up your own will and just obey the priesthood over you. A definite salaciousness tends to characterize media and pop culture representations of cults. The writer Rachel Monroe, who shadowed a group of Manson bloggers and wrote about it for an upcoming issue of The Believer, points out that Charlie's girls had tooth decay, venereal diseases, and a general grottiness that comes with the territory. Yet the prurient subtext in cult narratives like theirs is, wow, this guy got to sleep with all these foxy, gullible women. He really knew what he was doing with this cult thing. It's a formula that heightens long-tolerated beliefs about gender, power, and psychology. Beliefs that, not coincidentally, sell. There's a reason that almost no stories of cults led by women become pop culture touchstones, even though they exist. Without a passel of sexy or simply suggestible young women to anchor these stories, a cult becomes infinitely scarier and far less entertaining. The pop culture primacy of the male guru and female disciple, or less kindly, the con man and the female dupe, can make you forget that men have historically been victims of cults and their leaders too. The Jonestown Massacre was the story that first fired my own fascination with cults. But it wasn't until seeing a 2006 documentary 
that I learned that Jim Jones made a habit of sexually humiliating and abusing male as well as female followers to test their loyalty. Brent Jeffs, a nephew of Warren Jeffs, describes in Prophet's Prey the horror of being walked to the basement of the compound's makeshift elementary school and raped by his uncle. And then, as now, the media's overweening focus on Manson's unrepentant female devotees all but erased the men who also murdered for him. So why are so many women compelled by these stories of male wish fulfillment? Why are we driven to dig deeper, even when what we find is invariably unsettling? There are some self-evident theories. For non-religious people, the possibility of feeling fed or healed or transformed by a belief system is intriguing, even if that belief system is organized around aliens or comets or sex magic. The sense of connection to others is also an obvious lure, the same desire to feel like a necessary part of a larger system that brings people to teams and sororities and activist groups. But I also wonder if the appeal of cult stories to women in particular has something to do with the anxiety of contemporary expectations around success, happiness, and choice. Choice, especially, is a word that in so many ways has come to stand in for feminism itself. And women are reminded every day how lucky so many of us are to have choices that generations of women only dreamed of. And yet, the anxiety and even fear of having these choices is very real. More choices means more chances to make the wrong ones. But what if you were sure that you'd found exactly the right path? What if you knew beyond all doubt that you were with the right people, learning from the right leaders, becoming the person that you were meant to be? Cults, with their unequivocal black and white belief systems, offer that for better and worse. Or alternately, is consuming these stories a way to challenge their narratives? Listening and learning the lines and the tells of thought reform and groupthink could be a kind of psychic insurance policy. If we know how cults work, we won't be gullible enough to fall for the florid promises of a self-described messiah. Instead of thinking, that could have been me, we can think, that would never be me. Or maybe it's simply that cult narratives are reliable when almost every new day brings some fresh hell to our newspapers and Twitter feeds, knowing that cult stories will keep doing exactly what they do can be a soothing pop culture reprieve. Their characters, their trajectories, their disillusionments, their hypocrisies aren't rewarding exactly, but they are familiar. Somewhere out there, amid the horrors of uncertainty and injustice, we're connected, we cult cultists by the devils or the messiahs we know. That was Bitch Editorial and Creative Director Andy Zeisler. You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today, we're talking about cults. So I'm holding in my hands something that's very, very normal. A box of tea. Celestial Seasonings Sleepy Time Tea, to be specific. I'll just open this up. It smells like 
chamomile. It's very nice. I like it. But behind this mundane sleepy time tea, I recently learned, is a weird history. It's a story of how cults can impact our society down to the most everyday objects, even long after they've dissolved or fallen out of power. To tell this story is Megan Giller. Megan is a feminist and a food writer who wrote an article about the surprising history of sleepy time tea that was published on the website Van Winkles, as well as Raw Story. Megan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, so everyone in my office was talking about your article about Celestial Seasonings Sleepy Time Tea. Um, it's just so surprising. Yeah, totally. And I'm, I'm glad you guys found it as interesting as I did. Let's start at the beginning. Can you tell us about the person who founded Celestial Seasonings and how they came up with the formula for Sleepy Time Tea and the role that cults play in that? Yeah. So um, Mo Siegel um, and a couple partners founded Celestial Seasonings Tea. And at the time, there, like all tea was pretty much made with the tea plant. There was no such thing as herbal tea. But um, these This was guys in the 1970s, were, right? This was in the 70s, yeah. And they were kind of living this alternative lifestyle out in Colorado. And they got the idea to go pick herbs out in the mountains of Colorado. Um, and so they, they picked herbs and started making tea with them. Um, and I think one was called uh, Moe's 36 Herb Tea because the founder's name was Moe Siegel. Um, and they just started having a lot of success with this. Um, and I guess the idea for the company itself came from this inspiration of a book they called the Arantia book that they were really into and reading at the time in the 70s um, that some might see as kind of a, a cult religious book. Um, and they even, I mean, it kind of influenced everything about their business, like how they chose to structure the business, how they ran the business. Um, they even apparently would kind of have um, maybe not fights, but discussions with the the um, other employees and use the Urantia book as kind of a way to, you know, to se seal the deal on their argument and be like, no, the Urantia book says this. So this is the right way to do this. So I had so, never heard of the Urantia book before. What is this book? Yeah. So the Urantia book is um, a not very well known religious text um, written in the 1800s. Um, and supposedly it's a, a direct voice book, meaning that it was um, kind of handed down to someone from a higher power. And in this case, they believe it was um, extraterrestrial beings. So, um, and it kind of outlines um, this alternative universe where, um, so Earth is called Urantia in the Urantia book. That's where it gets its name. So it kind of outlines what this whole alternative universe looks like. And then also, I think the, the last part really talks about Jesus's life, like what's not covered in the New Testament, all the other days in his, you know, 36 years or however many years he was alive. So this is a so, really hefty, big religious text that is written by aliens. It is. It is. Yes, that's exactly right. And it's huge. It's It's really long. And the descriptions of the universes are very complicated. They're all sorts of interesting beings like seraphim and it's really that was one thing I almost really couldn't get a handle on was the the actual text because it's so huge. Well you said in your article that they really take the um, supernatural authorship of this book very seriously and, uh, and fighting it all the way down to copyright law. Oh yeah they do so um, and that's a really interesting story so someone um, I think it was in the 90s she was actually a follower of the Urantia book she was um, a, a true believer and she um, distributed 
some copies of it to um, to her friends on floppy disk, I think, which like, remember floppy disks? It was a long time ago. Right, a long time ago. <laughs> um, yeah, totally. But um, so she just, she distributed the book and um, the kind of organization behind the Urantia book called the, the Foundation or the Fellowship, they really didn't like that. And they're a pretty litigious bunch. And so they actually sued her for copyright infringement. And she came back and said, well, you know, it's authored by a higher power, which actually isn't protected under copyright law. And the court ruled with her. And so now it's in the public domain. If you have a, a religious text that is written by God or by an alien, that's copyright free. Apparently, yes. I didn't realize that until I started getting into this world. And yeah, it's an interesting, uh, I don't know, loophole. Yeah. <laughs> so so how did this alien text influence Celestial Seasonings? I, so Mo Siegel, who founded Celestial Seasonings, and um, some of the other founders would really use the book to guide all of their business decisions. Um, and he'll, he'll even say that he kind of used it, um, he, he it gave him the idea to found Celestial Seasonings, that he really wanted to found a company that um, followed these certain ideals, and uh, as outlined by the Urantia book. And, and when he talks about it, he'll talk about like, you know, generosity and um, kind of being true to nature and that sort of thing. And that's all really lovely. But there's some other stuff in the Urantia book that I think also... I don't know if it influenced Celestial Seasonings the way it was run, but it definitely, you know, since it was spoken about in Celestial Seasonings is part of the company's history, too. And some of that is not so pretty um, and really has to do with eugenics and some really racist ideas. Well, let's talk about that. So what's the eugenics part of this book? Yeah. So, um, I mean, in the Urantia book, they basically believe that um, pain... And all of those sorts of things are caused by, um, gosh, I'm trying to get this right because it's so complicated, are caused by basically uh, lower races that need to be eliminated. And once those those races have been eliminated, um, then we, human beings can kind of reach their true potential. And this isn't something that just happens on Earth. This is actually a process that has to happen on every planet. And traditionally, what would happen, according to the Arantia book, is that um, Adam and Eve, who are actually aliens themselves, um, and there are many thousands of, not really clones, I guess, but different versions of Adam and Eve in different universes, they would come to Earth or whatever you know planet they're going to. And um, by mating with the higher beings on that, that planet um, would kind of create this like perfect race. But that didn't really happen on Earth. Somehow it got messed up. <laughs> Adam and Eve on Earth kind of screwed that plan up. And so the way to um, get to that higher race or, or perfect race is then through eugenics and by eliminating, you know, um, I mean, they say very specifically what races should be eliminated and like, you know, anyone with any sort of mental handicap and um, all of that sort of stuff. So it's, it's uh, pretty alarming stuff in there. Yikes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it's one thing to believe in a book written by aliens, but it's it's I think an entirely different thing to believe in a book written by aliens that is that is a pro eugenics message. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I feel the same way, and it's in, there's so many interesting parts 
to the Urantia book, um, and you just named two of them. And it, you know, but I agree with you. Like, if people want to believe in aliens and believe in that text, fine. But then once it starts to get to eugenics and really actively taking a part in sterilizing people and that sort of thing, it um, starts to take on a new level. So I know that this book is supposedly written by aliens, but do you have any idea who is actually behind it or how uh, the ideas of of eugenics and eliminating so-called inferior races wound up as a central part of this book that apparently lots of people are following? Yeah, so one of the main people who kind of helped promote the Orientia book and was responsible for a lot of it when it came out was named William Sadler. I'm not sure I'm saying his last name right. It might be Sadler. So um, he um, was a psychologist. He was actually a pretty well-known psychologist um, in the early 1900s. And um, he had a lot of these ideas himself. And he actually wrote um, some books called, let's see, I'm looking them up here, Longheads and Roundheads or What's the Matter with Germany? Racial Decadence and Examination of the Causes of Racial Degeneration in the United States and the Truth About Heredity. Wow. So the people who uh, were fundamental in founding Celestial Seasonings were followers of this Arantia book um, and big fans of it. Um, do you think that these ideas around eugenics or racism influenced the, the company in some substantial ways? And where does Celestial Seasonings stand these days? Is the Arantia book still part of their like corporate structure? <laughs> well, so Mo Siegel retired um, in the 90s. So he is not actively involved with that. He is like on the board of directors of Whole Foods. And one of the other main founders is also on the board of directors and involved with a lot of companies that you would recognize. So um, let's see, how, do, how did it influence what they are doing now? You know, you'd think like just because that information is in a text from the, you know, late 1800s, early 1920s early 1920s, that doesn't necessarily mean that most Siegel would believe it now, but he actually does say that he does believe in all of the uh, calls for eugenics and and that kind of thing. So I don't know if they've actively done anything, um, you know, within Celestial Seasonings related to that. I, I don't think I could speak to that, but um, it definitely is part of the history of the company. So now I'm holding a box of Celestial Seasonings, and on the back there's a quote from Confucius, and the company recently rebranded to look a little less funky, a little more uh, mainstream, I think. When you when you drink Celestial Seasonings these days, if you do, do you think about this history? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I actually stopped drinking it, and, you know, if it was just the aliens like we were talking about earlier, I would be fine drinking Sleepy Time Tea. It was actually one of my favorite teas. Um, but now with knowing this history and I don't know, some stuff that maybe is still going on it, I, I don't want to be involved with it. Um, but it's interesting you mentioned those quotes cause I guess most Siegel, the way he got the idea for those quotes was actually the Orientia book. That's what inspired him to put those inspirational quotes on the back of the tea boxes, even if it is from Confucius, some of the, you know, the other ones might not be. <laughs> Megan Giller. She writes interesting food stories for lots of different media outlets. You can follow her on Twitter at Megan Giller. Ooh. 
Propaganda is produced by the team here at Bitch Media. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker. Additional music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Look up their creative and minimalist sounds by going to Google and typing in sessions.blue. And the show is produced by Alex Ward. Bitch Media is entirely supported by thousands of folks like you. Not some big corporation or a deep-pocketed donor with a hidden agenda. If you love tuning in each week, please pitch in at bitchmedia.org podcast. And be sure to mention Propaganda or Backtalk when you donate. As promised, I have some listener love from fans of Propaganda and Backtalk. Nicole from the UK bought a Bitch subscription and said, I love Bitch Media's content and Propaganda is now my absolute favorite podcast. I've been really working my way through the archives. My favorite thing about that, Nicole, is that you spell favorite with a U in the British way. I love that U for some reason. Thanks so much for writing in. Adam in Australia bought a digital copy of Bitch Magazine's Nerds issue and kept it simple. Adam wrote in all caps, Backtalk, propaganda, woo! Followed by like 10 heart emojis. Thank you so much, Adam. That's wonderful. And then there's a note from listener Ashley, who left a really moving review of the podcast on iTunes. Ashley wrote, Propaganda has allowed me to begin the monumental process of distinguishing between the thoughts and feelings that are mine and the thoughts and feelings that other people have been telling me to have my entire life. It taught me that every feeling I have is valid and that other women have those feelings too. Wow, that's amazing, Ashley. I'm always engaged in that process of trying to figure out how I really think and feel, so I'm right there with you. Thank you so much for writing in and for supporting the show. (laughs) 